0: is just 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 inspiring and uh, something that motivates me as a minister to to think deeply about how the faith applies to all of life, which, as you know, is something which is very dear to my heart. So uh, if you would, please welcome my dear friend, Andrew Sandler. I'm glad to see all of you today. I'm glad that you're in the Lord's house on the Lord's Day, which is where you're supposed to be, and uh, in addition, also here for Sunday school, and I bet the congregation's going to be larger for worship today, so tell all of the people that are here then but not here now, they need to be in Sunday school, because uh, that's where you get additional instruction in the Word of God. It is called Sunday school, so I'm going to offer instruction today. I guess it's a testimony to um, my high assessment and regard for your pastor's uh, teaching that I'm going to speak publicly today on a topic I've never spoken on before specifically. I've been thinking about this and praying about it and studying the word for all the last two or three years, and I thought this would be a good place to unveil it. And I hope that at our Q&A time today that maybe you can ask questions and make comments and suggestions, and if you disagree, you can express that and help me to improve it. I guess that's a sophisticated way of saying, you're going to be my guinea pigs today, (laughs) but you're really smart guinea pigs, and uh, that's why I'm speaking this to you today. I'd like us to, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do bring your Bible to church, this is, after all, a church that believes the Bible— Let's turn to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. Colossians, chapter 1. I'm not going to read it at the beginning, but I'm going to read two brief sections after I uh, speak for a couple of minutes. I'm speaking today on uh, a unique take concerning uh, redemption. Now, uh, redemption is at the heart of Christianity If you take out redemption, you no longer have the Christian faith. This, by the way, is how Christianity is fundamentally different from other world religions. Uh, Islam, for example. Islam, at its root, is a religion of ethics. Christianity, at its root, is a religion of redemption. Now, we can live the right kind of lives before God, that is, ethics... Because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. Redemption. The redemption comes first. But Christians don't always agree about the specifics of that redemption. The Roman Catholics disagree with the Protestants. The Calvinists disagree with the Arminians. The liberals, well, they're not really Christians, are they? (laughs) They say they are, but they're actually not. The liberals disagree with the Orthodox. But I'm talking specifically today about disagreement among Orthodox Bible-believing people, evangelical Christians. That disagreement is becoming sharper over time, and certainly in recent years. It's a big disagreement, and it shapes the kind of churches we have and the kind of Christians that we are. In fact, I'm tempted to say that we practice a distinctive kind of Christianity depending on the view of redemption that we hold. There are two distinctive views, and if you're taking notes, um, I'd like to label them, the two views, personal redemption and cosmic redemption. Personal redemption and cosmic redemption. At some points, they're overlapping, but at other points, they're not. They're quite different and even competing. I think I'll explain them briefly, and then I'm going to draw out some implications Of that explanation and how they relate to one another. Both views take the Bible as God's Word. Both views appeal to the Bible to support their distinctives. So that must mean the differences arise in how they interpret the Bible. But even more fundamentally, the differences emerge in how we interpret the kind of Christianity that the Bible requires of us. In other words, these are worldview differences. Two different redemption worldviews. You say, well, Andrew, what in the world are you talking about? I'm glad you asked. I'm going to get to that right now. First, I'd like us to consider uh, personal redemption. We might start by reading, and you can read along silently as I read Colossians 1, 11 through 14. Colossians 1, 11 through 14. May you be strengthened, Paul writes, with all power according to his God's glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, this is one of the many passages that the proponents of personal redemption might point to as supporting their view. A personal redemption begins with the cross. Our human parents fell into sin in the garden, but God still loved the human race, and so he determined to send his son, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, to redeem us. That term redemption just means buying back by paying a ransom. When we sinned, we abandoned God. We abandoned him his kingdom and his ways. And to get us back, God sent his only son, his only beloved son to pay a heavy price. So Jesus Christ is our price-paying redeemer. And what a price he paid for us on the cross. Now, why was that necessary? Well, our sin elicits, provokes God's judgment. God was not free to overlook our sin. God is a holy God. In order to fellowship with him, and this is what God desires of his people fundamentally. It's for us humans, created in his image, to commune with him and to be his people in the earth. But to do that, to commune with him, we need to be a holy people. Our sin disables holiness. So, we can't make ourselves holy when we are under God's judgment. And therefore, God himself Must make us holy. Now, he makes us holy in two ways. First, we have to be declared not guilty in the heavenly courtroom. We stand guilty before God. And to avoid judgment, we have to be not guilty. When Christ died on the cross, he bore the penalty for our sin. That's called substitutionary atonement. He suffered the Father's wrath for us, he paid our penalty. Therefore, his innocence became ours. This is called justification. Literally, it means we were righteous. In English, we don't have that verb. We don't. We can be righteous, but actually, if we were to put it in English, that's what it means. In Hebrew and Greek, we are, justification means we are righteous. We are righteous. God righteouses, see how hard that is to say a thing? Righteouses us. We're made right with God. Unredeemed sinners are wrong with God, but the justified are right with God. But God, of course, doesn't justify everybody. He justifies only those who trust in Jesus Christ and what his Son has done. And that's salvation by faith alone. We're not saved by works. If we could be saved by our works, we could boast, Paul says in Ephesians. But God wants all the glory for himself for our salvation. So we're saved by trusting and not by working. When we trust in Jesus Christ, God unites us with his dear Son, and his righteousness becomes ours. We're justified. Now, second, now that we're redeemed, the goal of our lives is to bring glory to God by loving him and obeying him, and of course, communing with him. The Holy Spirit works in us to accomplish this God glorifying life. We read God's word, and we pray to him, and we attend his church. And we teach our children to do this. And we tell others the good news of salvation, that is redemption, the gospel, the good news. And incrementally, God makes us more like Jesus Christ. That's called, this is Sunday school, are you listening? I said justification was making us holy judicially in God's courtroom. But what is the second thing I'm talking about? God making us holy in our walk. That's called sanctification. See, you are smart. I knew you were. So according to this view of personal redemption, the Lord's in this way preparing us to meet him in eternity. We look forward to the day when we die or we meet the Lord at his coming and we long to see the Lord according to this view. That's what we're really pushing for because we'll be fully sanctified. We'll be without sin. We'll enjoy full unhindered fellowship with the triune God. No more trials and difficulties and The illnesses of this life and the deprivations and those people that disappoint us. And so we look forward to being with the Lord. For all eternity we'll rejoice with the other saints, the other redeemed ones. Those in our family that have trusted in him and worshiping and glorifying God in this sinless and holy bliss in heaven. And the cross is at the heart of everything. The cross redeems sinful mankind and gets us back into God's good graces by grace alone. God redeems us from the penalty of sin. That's justification. And he also redeems us from the pollution of sin. That's sanctification. So that's kind of a quick summary of the view that I'm terming personal redemption. Now, let us consider cosmic redemption. And in full disclosure, that's my hand stands under God's judgment. Sin costs. That's the fall. But with the curse, God added a blessing. He promised a Redeemer in Genesis 3.15. This Redeemer would crush the serpent's head, even though the serpent would crush the Redeemer's heel. In that metaphor, we kind of know what that's talking about. The Redeemer is Jesus, and the serpent is Satan. And the head-crushing is a metaphor for a crushing victory. And the heel crushing is a metaphor for a crushing wound on the heel, on the foot. The death of Jesus on the cross is what I'm referring to, of course. Jesus would redeem sinful man by his atoning death on the cross. But note, please, what Paul said in Colossians 1 about redemption. I'm only going to read part of it now because I want to emphasize something. So listen to just these verses. All things were created through him and for him. In him, all things hold together. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Notice all the alls. This is much wider than personal redemption. Do you understand? All creation was implicated in man's fall, so all creation must be redeemed. Paul teaches this quite explicitly in Romans 8, 18 to 25. Creation itself is groaning for redemption. He means it metaphorically, but I think sometimes even in a very physical way. I live in and near some of the highest mountains in the country, the Sierra Nevadas, and sometimes you're driving oh, okay. through them and it's very quiet and still and you can really truly hear the mountains creaking just a little and groaning. And I sometimes wonder to myself, they're saying, we cannot wait for our redemption. And everything will be restored and the curse will be entirely removed. Moaning and groaning. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't die only to redeem a man. He died to redeem everything That the fall has polluted. This means creation, which God cursed on man's account. And this means culture, which man's sin pollutes. The uh, Isaac Watts Christmas hymn really captures this truth. And I suspect in this church, within a month or so, this very hymn will be sung. And by the way, the music in this church is outstanding. That was for free. I won't charge anything for that. (laughs) Listen to these lines that you have sung many times if you've been in the Lord's Church. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. See, creation, the curse. He, speaking of Christ, comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. You see, Jesus Christ didn't die just to save sinners. He died to save everything. Everything presently under the dominion of sin must be redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. I love the words of the late theologian Cornelius Van Til. He says, the sweep of redemption is as comprehensive as the sweep of sin. Paul writes, where sin increased, I would add, wherever it increased, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. But to redeem creation, God is redeeming man to restore him to his cultural mandate. And this is why that when Noah disembarked from the ark to reboot the world, we could say, God repeated the cultural mandate to him. And this is why when man defied God at Babel, God called a new holy race from Abraham and gave that race a more local commission, a local cultural mandate that would one day overspread the earth. And this is why Jesus Christ is God's Dominion man according to Ephesians 1. Listen to these couple of verses. God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age but also the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. But we too, the redeemed, join our Lord in this dominion task. That's what redemption restores us to. Daniel prophesied in chapter 7 that this would happen when the Son of Man, Jesus, ascended to his throne. In Ephesians 1 that I just quoted, Paul implies that Jesus rules in his church in order to rule the world. The churches in Revelation are promised that they will reign with the Redeemer if they overcome. We will reign. We who believe in cosmic redemption don't disagree with the basics of personal redemption, what Jesus did on the cross to redeem mankind. But we believe that that view of personal redemption is much too narrow. It's much too small. It stops short. Redemption is designed to reverse and overcome sin and its effects everywhere. It gets man right with God to do what God always intended for man to do to cultivate the world for his glory, exercising gracious dominion in the Lord's name and to bring back all of creation presently under sin into harmony with the Lord's purposes. Now, we don't believe this can happen with complete success before our Lord returns, but we do believe it can be comparatively successful, much more successful than has yet happened. Redemption is the restoration to man's calling on the earth. So in conclusion, let me just mention and discuss how these two views and visions of redemption relate to one another. I mentioned that the advocates of cosmic redemption, those who hold my view, think that the advocates of personal redemption miss the big picture of what's going on because they jump into the middle of the story. But the supporters of personal redemption, they have grave misgivings about the view that I hold. They think that in stressing cosmic redemption, we're kind of distracting from God's great goal. God's great goal, they think right now, is saving lost sinners. Well, we who hold this view of cosmic redemption, we apply God's redemptive truth to all sin-infested areas of life. To music, to politics, to education, to technology, to economics, to entertainment, and other areas of modern life. Well, they often think the world's presently the devils, and we're kind of wasting our time trying to influence it for the Lord. If we try to elect Christian candidates, or pass godly legislation, or if we support Christians producing top-notch movies and TV programs, or if we work to restore Christian economic principles in the wider culture, they think we're off track. We should be spending our time evangelizing the lost and sending missionaries, and perhaps working on our personal sanctification. Now, we believers in cosmic redemption agree that we should be engaged in those tasks, but they're not enough. They're necessary, but not sufficient. Why? Because, and this is a key fact, redemption is not an end in itself. God isn't redeeming us just because he likes to redeem us. Redemption is designed to restore man to his holy cultural mandate as God's deputy in the earth and to restore all of creation to glorify God. Moreover, if cosmic redemption is correct, all legitimate tasks are Christian tasks. That's an encouraging thought. Planting corn and writing computer code and waitressing And teaching physics, each of these isn't somehow neutral or non-Christian or less spiritual than pastoring a church or serving on the mission field. In all we do, we do it for God's glory as a Christian task. There aren't any areas of life exempted from Christian redemption. There is no sacred, secular Divide All areas of life presently under the reign of sin must be redeemed. That is, must be sanctified by the effects of Christ's death and resurrection. To be specific, this means gutting the theft program known as Obamacare. Overturning same-sex marriage. Well, it's not really marriage. Ending corporate welfare. Purging pornography. Healing the pervasive anxiety problems in our society, restoring originalism to the courts, outlawing surrogate motherhood, providing for the poor by unleashing the power of the free market. These, I might say, are not fundamentally conservative tasks. We're not interested first in being political conservatives. I'm telling you this morning, these are Christian tasks. They're Christian tasks. They're a Christian calling. They're no less Christian than revival meetings, seminary programs, and missions works. They're equally Christian. In addition, enjoying God's good creation is a Christian requirement. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians. Hear this. Finally, brothers, brothers whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. God requires us to ponder the righteous and the lovely and the excellent, both in creation and culture. For example, covenant children who obey their parents. What a delight to watch and to see. A jury's decision to convict a rapist is a good thing to see. That's a good and a holy thing to see. Majestic mountains and surging oceans and massive skyscrapers and fillet steaks (laughs) and Johann Sebastian Bach's chamber music and Stephen Curry's three-pointers. I had to say that I'm a Warriors basketball fan. And transatlantic aircraft and classical architecture, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy, we're required by God to ponder and relish these things. They bring us delight in God's world. And enjoying them, understand, is a Christian responsibility. I hope that you understand that point. It's not just that you're permitted to enjoy it. Do you understand that God created this good world for you to enjoy and relish his good world of creation? And if we don't do that, we are disobeying him. He wants us to relish this, not worship it, we worship only him, but to relish his good creation. And then finally, this redemptive work that I'm talking about, this cosmic redemption will not fail. God's promise that he'll roll back all sin and all of its pollution over time. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose, he delivered the fatal blow to sin and to Satan. Now, he didn't at that time entirely eradicate sin. He's working out this evil, crushing purpose progressively in time and in history. And just as Jesus himself had to endure great pain and hardship in order to defeat evil. So we as his people must endure the tribulations and the hardships and the great battle as God employs us to defeat and subdue evil. In conclusion, know this. God in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection is redeeming everything. God isn't just in the soul-saving business. He is in the cosmos-saving business. And... Finally, our destiny is not a home in heaven. The Bible absolutely does not teach that. Revelation 21 and 1 and four, one through 4 teaches that in the eternal state, the saints don't go up to heaven. It says that God in the new Jerusalem comes down to earth, a redeemed earth to be sure. The new Jerusalem comes down and God descends to dwell with men. Our destiny is this earth. Man was made for this earth. And God is restoring and expanding Eden. We're not called to escape the earth. But to exercise holy dominion in it. In this we can rejoice. God will not fail. And we will not either. Now are there any questions or comments. About that in the time remaining. Yes sir. Uh, The whole environmental. Your cosmic, uh, view as well. well, I think that's a good question about environmentalism. In many ways, this radical environmentalism that we see today is really a twisted, man-centered form of dominion. The, the biblical teaching is that we are to steward the earth for God's glory. Now, if you, if you want to say this, there is a biblical environmentalism that is caring for the environment, but that's not what dualistic View that, for instance, the Jews of the Old Testament were to care for the earth, but the Church is a completely, the Gentile Church is a completely separate program, and our concerns are only heavenly concerns. And the Church should not be concerned with the earth. The Church should be concerned with the way off uh, heaven, and the Church should be concerned with prayer and winning souls. But the Church shouldn't be concerned with obeying the word of God as applies to the culture and creation. Now the only way you can justify that position is to get rid of significant portions of the Bible. And that's exactly what dispensationalism does. Because if you read a lot of the Bible, not just the Old Testament, but largely the Old Testament, if you can get rid of the Old Testament and portions of the New Testament, you can read certain specific texts. For example, just what I did in, you notice, in Colossians 1? If you stopped reading only at verse 14 or 15, You can take that and say, oh, well,